Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. internet issues I guess tonight and so with that being said uh, everything that I have is up in the cloud and so I had to try to get my hotspot on my phone to have it on my iPad to have what I need to have on my iPad uh, for this evening so I'm waiting for it to get all connected but we'll be in Esther chapter number four Esther chapter number four and uh, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the first few verses of Scripture, probably down to verse number eight. I don't know if this thing's going to work with me or not. No, no, no. I can always use my phone if I have to. Technology is great when it works, and when it don't, it's not so great. Verses one through nine. When Mordecai perceived all that was done. Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry. And went even before and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came there was a great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her then was the queen exceedingly grieved and when she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him but he refused it but he received it not then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains whom he had appointed to attend upon her and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also, he gave him the copy of the writing and of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to shew it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for her people amen tonight i want to our subject or title tonight is this be ready against that day and actually still that phrase actually from esther 3 verse 14 be ready against that day the day i'm speaking of is the day that they have now marked upon the calendar for the day of destruction of the jews or for that day of destruction so i'm going to be talking on two levels our literal story and another spiritual level so be ready against that day is my subject title amen we're here for the evening. father we come to you tonight god we're grateful once again to be in your house i pray oh lord touch our hearts and minds afresh by the word of god Let your word lord jesus come alive lord for individual lives god that we would be made lord jesus better by it we know god that you're able lord to do great things lord through it God will trust you for it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen to the church say. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Be ready against that day. When we look at verse number one of chapter number four, we understand very quickly if you if you read once again the last verse of the previous chapter and you see there are a couple different responses uh, to those that uh, have now knowledge about the day of destruction that is to come upon the Jews. And there is a definitive line between those who are affected and those who are not affected, right? Uh, when something affects you, it's going to uh, be very different from someone who, whatever it is you're going through, has no effect upon them. And so there's a very definitive line even in the Bible. The last verse of chapter number 3, the Bible says the decree, of course, is made with the signature and the signet of the king Ahasuerus. 
although he doesn't really know what people he's doing this to. It's just a certain people as it was conveyed to him. Uh, but Haman knows, and after this decree has been written and stamped and sent abroad through the Pony Express of the Persian kingdom, uh, that we understand that Haman and King Ahasuerus, they just sit down and have a drink. After this horrible decree, if there's going to be a destruction of people, they sit down and have a, a drink. But Mordecai, on the other hand, when he learns about this very same decree, being a Jew, and this is going to impact his life and affect him and his household and, and uh, other Jews that are relatives and people that he knows, the Bible says he has quite a different response, that he goes into a place that he rents his clothes, he puts on sackcloth along with ashes, he cries a bitter cry, aloud in the middle of the city seemingly where anybody would pick up on that this man is in great distress. Shushan is perplexed and confused over everything that's going on in the decree anyway but Mordecai a man that it's going to affect is in just he is in mourning he is in sorrow he's deeply impacted by what's going to take place and we don't know for sure we don't know for sure there in verse number one but it, it makes us to tend to wonder that if when the Bible says when Mordecai perceived all that was done, that we don't know, but it's just something we must think about. You, it makes you wonder if he, he felt maybe even partially responsible for what this decree was and what was happening. It makes you wonder whenever he was perceiving all that was done, if he started to put the pieces together, this is coming against my people. I did not respect the office of... You just wonder. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, but he disrespected, yes, the office, and I don't know if he feels partially responsible or not. Uh, he should, but uh, nonetheless, uh, he has all these things coming about, and so this deep grief, this humility that he goes through, he, he, he might have... He have felt it. He might have felt perhaps a little responsible over uh, being the catalyst, if you will, being the thing that kind of nudged it forward in that particular direction and bringing this upon his people. And so this act of mourning of Mordecai, uh, this profound grief that he had, was found not just in Shushan, but it was found in every province that the Persian Empire covered. It tells us, as word got out, among all these peoples where the Jews existed and where they lived, that there was great mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like the last days, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, all this stuff going on uh, in the cities and the empire of Persia because they all are experiencing the same news of destruction and when you see that they rent their clothes that was a common thing through the Old Testament story that when a person was in deep grief or they lost a loved one or uh, so on and so forth it was a way of them expressing their deep grief of just renting their garments and then putting on sackcloth uh, and ashes upon their body to depict, to symbolize how deplorable of a situation they may have found themselves in or how deplorable they may have felt. Uh, that was a common activity throughout Scripture. Uh, for instance, in Genesis, whenever we read that Jacob uh, is brought that bloody garment that his uh, sons are telling them was Joseph's and leaving him to deduce what he will and Jacob thinks that his son Joseph is dead the Bible says that Joseph that Jacob rent his garments and he put on sackcloth we also read in scripture that David he responded very similarly although Saul was constantly trying to take David's life it was still his king and the Bible tells us whenever the man finally come to tell David that Saul indeed was dead that David likewise what did he do he rent his garments and he put on sackcloth and ashes to showcase and symbolize the great grief that he had and let me tell you something uh, you want to be a grieving person if you go wear sackcloth all right because sackcloth was a very coarse material uh, Sackcloth was typically made out of uh, goats or camel's hair. Now imagine having no other barrier between that and your body. Uh, they they made they made uh, grain sacks out of out of the goat's hair. I mean, basically, what what grain sacks were made out of was sackcloth. All right, thus the name sackcloth. Uh, but if you think just modern day, think about getting an old burlap bag, throwing that on for a t-shirt. 
you 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 were in bad case and and so it was it's itchy it's uncomfortable but it's very symbolic of where a person is emotionally and where they are with their circumstances of life right because you you felt uncomfortable literally because you felt uncomfortable emotionally right it was it was an irritant and so that's the reason why they did these things. And so whenever Mordecai learns about all this and he's totally grief-stricken, look what he does. This is his response. He goes to where he would usually go, right? We read in Scripture in chapters prior to this one that Mordecai finally finds his place, the Bible says, in the king's gate. We read that in chapter number 2. At other times we see him either sitting or standing. Where? At the king's gate. And so he goes where he would normally go. He goes to the king's gate, but the Bible tells us, because that's his place, right? The Bible tells us, though, in this moment of sorrow, and you can read this in, in the verses of Scripture in verse number 2, that he came before the king's gate, but he could not enter into the king's gate because he had sackcloth on. He was in a, a time of mourning. He was in a time of being uncomfortable and irritated in his emotions. And culturally for that day, it was uncommon for kings to have sadness in their courts. We never read, even in real history, you don't read, you always read about having court gestures. Not, not court mourners and weepers and wellers. You don't read of that. You have gestures that are in the court. Trying what? To keep the atmosphere light, to make sure the king's happy, everything is just going well and well. And so it wasn't common for them to have sadness in their courts or to permit that. We read that even in the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, the king of that time, Artaxerxes, he addresses Nehemiah because Nehemiah comes before the king with a downcast countenance. And the Bible says in Nehemiah 2 and verse 2, wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad? He's like, wait a minute. We don't have this in the court of the king. Why is thy countenance sad? Seeing thou art not sick, this is nothing else but look. He picked up on it, sorrow of heart. And then Nehemiah says, I was very sore afraid. Nehemiah is fearful. Why? Because customarily in the court of the king, it was kept clear of sadness. It was kept clear of discomfort of the subjects. There was no, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There, you know, it didn't want to cause no ripples among the palace. All is fair, all is well. And so Mordecai goes to the king's gate where he would normally go day by day, but he's not allowed to enter into the king's gate because of his demeanor. Because with all this weeping and wailing, Mordecai in your sackcloth garment there, man, you're really going to bring you're really going to bring the whole atmosphere of the kingdom down a notch. You know that that doubt, that big uh, cloud of doom and despair that you're carrying around, uh, it's just not going to do well for the palace. And so what it comes down to is this: remember, Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. He is, if we can do the parallel, he is the king of the world. And the king of the world doesn't want to be troubled with what's troubling you. That's what it comes down to. Is that the king of this world is different from the king of kings. Ahasuerus didn't want to be troubled by other people's troubles. If you're having a bad day, that's your bad day. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be an accessory to it. I don't want to help. Huh? So you stay outside of the regions of the palace because I don't want you to bring the whole tempo of us down a notch. He wants, and look, this is really the mindset then of the kingdom of our world because we want the, 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 the what's portrayed sometimes is that nothing ever goes wrong in the kingdom of this world. It's always butterflies and tall grass to run through, everything as well. The adversary of our soul wants us to believe that everything is well and everyone is always happy on this side of the fence. But the only way really that I, I deduce that the enemy can even make that facade to us is by this. He never allows anybody in his world to be a bother to him. He doesn't allow them into the court, so to speak. He keeps them at arm's distance. When's the last time Satan helped you with your sickness? 
When's the time Satan helped you with your depression? When's the last time Satan helped you with your fear? There are many people that are part of his kingdom, but he's not allowing them into the palace with all of their woes, with all of their frustrations, when the moments that they're lamenting and crying and need of help, he's turning the other direction. You find it somewhere else today. I can't allow you to bring the whole tempo of my kingdom down a notch because we're trying to keep a facade up. Everything's always well right here. Someone say amen. And so here is, here is Mordecai. This, this is what he has sowed himself out to, the kingdom of Persia. This is what he stayed around for and didn't go home for. And yet in his moment of need, don't come into the king's gate because that's not allowed. We don't allow that type of stuff around here. You're experiencing, yes. You'll experience that here just as much as you would experience it in Jerusalem. But we're not allowing any help to be given you here. We're not going to be a shoulder for you to cry on here. Someone say amen. So then in the kingdom of the world of Persia, if you were looking for sympathy or if you were looking for empathy from your king, then you might as well forget it. You're not, getting, you're not going to find the king sympathizing with where you're at or empathize. He's not, he's not going to be disposed to feeling what you're feeling right now in the moment. Because let's get real. We all like it every once in a while for someone just to be able to empathize and to feel what we're feeling. But you won't find that in the king of the world. Not, 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 not a hazardous. He's not going to allow you in. He's not, he's not going to be disposed to that. He, he, he's not going to... I mean, think for it. We're talking about a guy who when Haman came to him and said, hey, I'm going to destroy a certain portion of the people of this kingdom, he didn't even ask who. He said, here's my ring. Take care of it. Now, if that's the type of guy he is, do you think he's going to be there for you on a bad day? Because everybody is dispensable in his kingdom and domain. I know he set the crown on Esther and she was loved above all women. We'll look at that here in a little bit. But everybody's dispensable in his kingdom. I'm glad tonight, I'm glad that I have a different kingdom. I'm glad tonight that my God, the psalmist said, knows my downsitting and my uprising and my thought afar off my king. I'm glad tonight that my burden provokes compassion from my God. If he sees me weeping and wailing, He's not turning the other, the other direction and saying, sorry, McGee, you can't come today into my church. Because you're going to bring the whole atmosphere of my kingdom down. And no, no, he invites me in. He invites me in and has compassion upon me. The moments of time that I'm faint-hearted and, and I'm lacking, that doesn't repulse my God. That doesn't repulse my king. He's, he's drawn, even in Scripture, New Testament Scripture, he's seen people that were sick. It, he was drawn to them. The Bible says his bowels of compassion would move inside of him because of their sickness and their sorrow. I'm glad tonight that I don't have to go and send word and ask the king if I can come in, that I have 24 access. 24-7 access to my God, to my king, and so much that the Scripture says that he says, come unto me. All ye that are heavy laden. That doesn't sound like a happy time. That doesn't sound like a joyous woohoo time. No, that's somebody in a bad condition. But he says, that one, that type of person, come unto me and I will give you rest. Someone say amen. Hallelujah. How does he do that? Because he's different from every other king. Because my king, unlike every other king, he, this great God of glory, took on my nature. Right? He took on humanity, the, the, the nature of humankind. And as a result of that, he empathizes with you and I. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 3, speaking of this great God that came in the likeness of man, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he's, in other words, he, he, didn't, he didn't shun all of that. No, he wanted to feel, he wanted to become a man in the form of a man so he could relate to humanity. 
not just to our high moments, but to our moments when we are down in despair, wailing and fasting and weeping and crying and overwhelmed. Amen. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid it. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely, look, he hath borne our griefs. Not a hazardous, not the kingdom of that world, not going to bear anybody's griefs. Keep your griefs outside the door. But our king, he bears our griefs. Amen. And he carries our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Our king is acquainted with our woes. And interestingly enough, he wants to share our load. Now that's different from the king of the world. Peter even said it like this, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. But the king of this world don't want to be troubled with your hardships, don't want to be troubled with your woes, don't want to be troubled with whatever's got you beat down. You've heard me say it before, but I'll repeat it here again tonight. The awesome thing about our God and our king is that our God carries us Whereas the other gods and idols that men trust in of this world, they must be carried. The scripture text proof, if you will, for that is Isaiah 46 and verse number 1. And I'll skip down to verse number 7 as well. Verse number 1 says, Bel boweth down Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beast and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. In other words, your idols and all these things, you have them being toted by cattle and carts and carriages and these beasts, the burden of cows and stuff are laden down, loaded down with carrying your gods and your idols around. Verse number seven, it says they bear him, speaking of the, these idols, upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place. That's what they did with the idols. And he standeth from his place he shall not remove because he can he don't have the ability to yea one shall cry unto him yet can he not answer nor save him out of his troubles they're carrying their God around where they put him that's where he remains because he can't do anything without the help of the one that made him and when they cry to him they can't answer that's a great God but verse number three of this same chapter tells me Christ is speaking to Israel now and says, hearken unto me. He's told them about these other gods and what they got to carry them and they're a burden to them. But he says, hearken unto me, a different king, right? A different God than the others. O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly which are carried from the womb, verse 4, and even to your old age I am he, and even to the whore hairs or the gray hairs will I carry you. I'm, I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and deliver you. Juxtapose against one another the gods of the world and the God of gods, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Over here, you carry your God, you call to your God, your God can't answer you where you put him, he stays because he can't do anything. On this hand, rather than you carrying your God, your God carries you and he carries your trouble and he carries your care. And when you call upon him, he answers. That's the difference between the God of this world and the God that's out of this world. Amen. Hallelujah. We don't have to stay outside the gate because I'm clothed in sackcloth and I'm in an uncomfortable emotional or literal situation. I don't have to stay outside of the gate because something uncomfortable has interjected into my life. No, I can enter into his gates just like I do on any other day when things are good or bad. I can still enter his gates. Like the psalmist said, David and their pilgrimage and oftentimes even prior to this, their way to the tabernacle and even when they weren't going. Read Psalms, all through Psalms. You see David several times. He said, as in my distress I cried out to the Lord and you heard me and you came to me from my, your sanctuary in my distress I talked to the Lord often he says in my distress he's crying out to God and God's not turning the deaf ear and God's not ignoring him and God's not saying come back to me whenever you, things are better no 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 he's there at amen the prayer of David at 
cried the lament of David to do what he can do to carry David until he can walk again on his own. Amen. That's my God. That's my God. Amen. So there's other translations here. When we get down to like verse number four, because Esther, her maids and her chamberlains inform her really, and when we read the rest of the verses, we come to understand that they don't inform her about the decree as much as they inform her about Mordecai's behavior. He's crying, he's lamenting out here in the middle of the city. And so she's made aware about Mordecai's sorrow and she's made aware about him grieving exceedingly. And she don't know why he's sad, but she knows, of course, by their report that he is sad. Now think with me for a moment, because this just isn't just any, just any man in Shushan that's sad. This is Mordecai. This is the man that took Esther as his own daughter to rear her, to raise her when her parents had died. I mean, it, it's basically her guardian, right? It's all that she is known as a parental figure. So just think just for a moment if, if this person, Esther, seen or learned about her parental figure that is lamenting and grieving and sackcloth on this one that raised her, it's going to affect her, right? I mean, I don't know if you ever remember as a, a child, and I realize Esther's not a child, but I don't know if you ever remember as a child ever witnessing your mom or dad cry, but that affects you. It's that parental figure in your life. It affects you. Your heart goes out. It's like, what can you do to make this better? So no doubt Esther is impacted by learning about the grief of Mordecai. Regardless of the reason, he's crying. He's, he's, he's weeping. He's welling. And the Bible says in verse 4 that she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him. But he received it not. Now remember that sackcloth was very uh, symbolic of where he was, what he was going through, what he's facing. And she's doing what we do sometimes, right? In a very symbolic way. She's doing what, what we do. She attempted to clothe him and take away the sackcloth. Take away that irritable, oh, scratchy, itchy sackcloth. Take away the discomfort that he had upon him. Because that's what we like to do sometimes, right? You see somebody, bad, you just want to fix it, right? Allay the tears. You know, sometimes some people can't really take crying. They'd rather, you know, just make it better so I don't have to hear them cry. Oh, we might need to stay here for a moment. No, but nonetheless, she just, just wants to allay the discomfort that he's feeling. Take away the sackcloth. She could probably hardly stand. Here's... You know, I don't, I don't know if she ever called him dad, but here's dad crying. She wants him better. And so the Bible says, whenever he refused that, that Esther then sends a servant, and she basically sends him to get the full story of what Mordecai was facing, who he was facing it from, try to get the complete story of what's going on. And the Bible says when Mordecai tells all that happened to him. This is verse number seven. Whenever he tells all that happened to him, and I don't know, again, there's a lot of silence in Esther, meaning there's a lot of things that's just left with no explanation that you either deduce from what you read in other places or you just got to leave it unknown. And so I don't know whenever he says, when it says that he tells all that happened to him, I don't know if he went down the road about talking about, you know, Haman's went by more than once, Esther and I, I never have, I've never bowed or showed reverence to his office. I don't know if he, I don't know if he tells all of that. I don't know if he tells about how the servants were constantly urging him, hey man, why don't you do this? And he just said, basically paid no attention. I don't know if he told that part of it or not. We do know what he did tell. We do know he tells her about the decree, what the decree concerned, the Jews and the destruction. He did tell her about how much money Haman was willing and promised to pay the treasuries of the king if we would take care of 
if this destruction would be taken care of. He does talk to her about all of that. Not only that, he even sends a copy of the decree with the servants so Esther might see it and read it for herself. And he told the servant, you got to see this in Scripture because the poor little servant, he goes to talk to Esther, then he talks to Mordecai, and Mordecai sends him back to talk to Esther, and Esther sends him back. This servant boy, I don't know what he's getting paid, but he's earning it on this day. And so he's going back and forth. And so whenever he sends him back to Esther with the decree, he says, you go on and you tell Esther too, but I want her to go before the king. I want her to make supplication before the king. I want her to make a request Notice, he says, I want her to make a request for her people. No, the only thing that the decree concerned was the Jews. The moment that Mordecai told this servant, I want her to make a plea for her people, he automatically identified Esther as a Jew to her servant. Note that. Automatically indicated that by what he said to her. And so now he's revealed this just to a servant and now it seems like even Mordecai and what he's asking her to do wants her to reveal her identity. The man that all along has been like, hide it, don't show it, conceal it, keep it to yourself, don't say anything about your kindred people. Now is the man saying, tell him, Esther, tell him, reveal your identity. Because here's the fact of the matter. If she goes before the king and says, you know, Maybe we don't need to do this destruction thing on such and such day that involve all the Jews. I mean, why would that be a concern, Esther? Well, <laughs> well, I happen to be one of them. I happen to be one of those people. But here's the fascinating thing, because we start to see some changing in our characters now here at this chapter in the book of Esther, that whenever destruction was imminent, destruction was going to happen, right? It's been pinned in the law. Destruction was going to take place. Now Mordecai wants to do the right thing. When he knew destruction was coming, he's now ready to do the right thing. He now wants Esther to claim her identity and claim her people as her people. And I find as a pastor, as part of the human fabric upon this earth, it happens every time Every time in the real world where something points to the coming of the Lord and the world's judgment, people want to start doing the right thing. Well, years ago, back whenever we were rolling from 1999 to the year 2000, entering the new millennium, didn't know what was going to happen with all the pewters. Oh, everybody was on pins and needles. I remember thinking that the end of the world was coming, people. Oh, yeah. People were checking their life. What happened? They thought destruction was near, judgment was near, and everybody started wanting to do the right thing. September 11th came, terrorist attack on American soil. I was in revival services as an evangelist in the state of Kentucky. Whenever that all happened, I was in the middle of revival. That night of September 11th, we didn't cancel service. We had church, had the most people probably ever. It was a little storefront mission church. That thing was packed out to the gills, quite different from the other nights prior to September 11th. Why? Because people thought, man, this is coming. It's happening. We're going to, they wanted to do right because they felt like destruction was on the way. That's all right. That wears off for a while. Have COVID just happened a couple of years ago? My God, we had numbers of views uh, online. And it wasn't just because you guys were home. It was because other people that didn't even do anything with God started checking out all the sites of churches and going to every online service they could. Why? Because they thought destruction was coming. The mark of the beast is coming and everything. And so we're going to start doing right. Red heifers just happened here lately, cause a buzz in the social world. Some are saying, why is this happening? Others saying, oh my goodness, this is the coming, another sign of the coming of the Lord. And people start, you know, getting on pins and needles, why? And they're like, I'm gonna do right. Hmm. There's a stirring, because people want to do right. They want to do right when they believe it's about over. They want to be a Christian. They want to claim their Christianity when they think it's about over. Whew. Lucky for Mordecai and Esther, they had an 11-month broadcast of when it was going to take place. 
We're not afforded that. We know the times and the seasons, but no man knows the day or the hour. We cannot live life with our identities concealed and just all of a sudden decide, oh, this could be it. I'm a Christian. I'm a great godly one. God doesn't talk to Naps. Talk, hallelujah, Christian now. No. No. It isn't just 2000. We could go back further from 2000. Different episodes of history, things that have happened, that the church has had flux of increase and support and recognition and involvement in the lives of the people that claim it because they thought the end was near. Someone say amen. And here's, can be scary. Esther was in the palace of the king of that world. And she was ignorant of the happenings and the timetable for God's people. She was in the palace. She didn't know what was going on until Mordecai told her from the outside what was going on. You can get so sucked into this world that you really don't pick up on what's going on in the world that you're living in. She lived in Shushan Court. But she's unaware of what's happening around her until somebody fills her in. Verse number 10, and I won't finish chapter 4 tonight purposefully. And again, Esther spake unto Hatach, because he's been sent once again to Esther, told the words of Mordecai, and now sent back. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king in the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come unto the king these 30 days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to Answer, Esther, think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So to Hatak, Esther tells him why she hesitates to go in before the king of the world because she has not been called to come before him for the past 30 days. And if you go without being called, one of two things happen. You live or you die. <laughs> really quite simple you 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 either extends the golden scepter to you and you live or because you came in without being summoned you die and so that's a reason Mordecai if I do this I may die but if you don't do anything 11 months from now you go die so she had to chance a maybe of not dying to avoid a certainty of dying. In essence, she had nothing to lose. She had nothing to lose. Her story is real similar to the four lepers that we read of in, in the book of Kings. Who the, They're struck with leprosy. There's no known cure that day. So if nothing's done about it, guess what? They die. The Bible says, well, we, they could have went into the city, but the city has famine in it. If we go there, we're going to die. But if we sit right here and we do nothing, we're lepers. We're going to do but nothing but die. So why don't we take our attempt of going into the enemy's uh, camp of Syria and see what may happen there. The worst thing that can happen 
is we'll die. <laughs> In other words, they didn't have anything to lose. Every option it looked like was death or at least the possibility of death. And so here it is, Esther, it's improper for her to come in before the king if she was not summoned. And this is just, I don't know, uh, the poeticness of scripture. Vashti was disposed of because she didn't go when she was summoned. Esther was fearing she might be done away with if she went when she wasn't summoned. It's like, bad if you do, bad if you don't, you know. She's just in a, a quandary right here. And so because it's not lawful. And so the Bible says, now think with your brains tonight. Amen. Esther has not been summoned into the king, for the king, for the past 30 days. Again, we've already looked at, we've already looked at. They usually don't like to bring bad moods, you know, into the kingdom, Right? They won't, don't want bad news. They don't want to witness suffering. And another thing added to the list, they didn't like interruptions. I'm glad my God's not like that. I'm glad my king's not like that. They didn't want no interruption. I'm glad, I'm glad sometimes when I come to God with my mess that he's not like, oh, it's McGee again. And there's probably some of us frequent fly enough that if he was like us, he would probably think that. But he doesn't see me as an interruption. Now think, she's not been called to his presence for 30 days. Think. And yet in chapter 2, when she spent that one night with the king and a year of preparation, the Bible talks about how she was loved by this earthly king. She was loved above all women, which could have been up to the number of 4,000 of them that was going to go through there. She was loved above all women. Just five years earlier, the king set in the crown on her head. Oh, this is Esther the queen. I love her above all women. But he's not had her in his presence for 30 days. Oh, how quickly the love of the king of the earth fades for you. That if now he's not even had you near him for 30 days, he's not even summoned you, been interested in you for the past 30 days. Days. I'm glad that my heavenly king, it, he, he, he's wondering where I'm at if I've not made it today. Amen? And I don't even have to be summoned. I can waltz right into his presence. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That means what affects us, he's affected by but was in all points attempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. Look at that. Look at this privilege we have. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can do that with my king. I can go boldly. As a matter of fact, his death made that available to me. I don't have a high priest going in for me as a representative of me. I represent myself and I go at any time boldly into his throne room. And so the servant told Mordecai and Mordecai responded, amen, to what Esther had said concerning this 30-day thing. And he basically tells Esther this. He says, let's have a come to Jesus session because why? Our characters are starting to change here, right? Destruction coming, time to get right, glory, amen, hallelujah. And let me tell you something. I'm not stubbing my nose at them because they're getting right. Thank God for it. The only thing I say, it's too bad it took something so drastic for him to get right. And we're not always afforded that opportunity. Mordecai responded and said, hey, listen here, honey, Esther. He said, you're, you're not going to escape destruction any more than any other Jew. You're not going to escape destruction any more than any other Jew. And if you think that the palace of the king of Persia, if you think the palace of the king of this world is going to be a safe place when destruction comes, said you are grossly, grossly uh, incorrect. It will not be. The destruction will not discriminate. You'll visit the palace just as much as you'll visit the gutter. Uh -huh. all the times 
All the other times Mordecai is saying, mm, conceal your identity, be silent. Now he's telling her to plead for her people to do something, identify with them. As a matter of fact, if you read verses 13 and 14, as he's responding to Esther, he's reminding her about, amen, her Jewish roots. You're not going to escape more than all the other Jews. Uh, he says, you and your father's house. He's All the other times he said, don't say anything. Now he's laid it off. Pick you are a Jew. This is your father's house. These are your kindred. These are your people. According to Mordecai, he was basically telling Esther, Esther, now is not the time to stay silent. Now is the time to be vocal, all right? And so there's the mindsets. There's, there's a changing, a shifting that's taking place. And yes, we're grateful that they're thinking differently. But again, too bad it had to be so drastic for it to happen. And so he tells her, he says, deliverance, Esther, is going to come. Deliverance is going to come to the Jews. I don't know what Mordecai was leaning on right then. He might have been leaning on the covenant of God and the promises of God that they had known as Jewish people. That Genesis 12 had said, oh, the great promise that was given to Father Abraham, that I will bless who bless you and I will curse him, them that curse you. Maybe he was leaning upon that, but he said deliverance is going to come. He said, but if you don't say anything, if you, if you just stay over here in the left field and stay to yourself, he said, if you hold your peace, you're going to be destroyed. Your father's house is going to be destroyed. He said, but deliverance is going to come nonetheless to the rest. And so here's the fact of the matter. I preached this years ago whenever I used to evangelize. The question was then not whether there would be deliverance. That wasn't the question. It's not whether the Jews were going to be delivered. That wasn't the question. The question was this. Esther, do you want to be a part of the deliverance that the Lord gives? Can I tell you today? Amen. There is someday, there is someday going to become destruction upon this world. The elements are going to melt with fire. The Bible says it's going to happen. There's going to be the stars and the moon and the sun that were, are not going to no longer, amen, give their energies or their light. All of that that is written in, in, in Revelation and Daniel, it will come to pass just as it says. But there will be a deliverance. There will be a deliverance. The question is not whether or not Christ will have a church. The question is not whether or not there will be a rapture. The question is this. Do you want to be a part of that rapture? Do you want to be a part of the deliverance? Destruction will come and deliverance will come, but do you want to be a part of the delivering side? Who knoweth? The most famous phrase of Esther. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Again, the kingdom he's speaking of is not the kingdom of God. We said this from the very first lesson, right? Because a lot of people kind of take this and preach about the kingdom of God. It just baffles me when it happens. But he's talking about the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of the God of this world. Who knows if thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I see deep reflection, really, in our characters here. Because... And I'm, this is just McGee, okay? Wondering maybe now, you know, Esther, maybe, maybe hiding your identity didn't get us where we're at. Maybe, maybe Esther pleasing everybody didn't really get us where we're at. Maybe God has been at work despite our unfaithfulness to him. Because God can make something beautiful even out of our mistakes. All over the United States, we have been in prisons that I cannot even tell you the myriad and the many of prisoners in several states and institutions that have said, quote, these words, I had to go to prison to find God. And what they mean is that is this, not that God wanted them to murder or God wanted them to steal and rob, or God wanted them to rape or molest. No. Whatever it was that landed them in prison, it's not that they're saying, God wanted me to do that bad act to get here. No. But basically the fact that Joseph realized in his journey that what the enemy may have meant for bad, that God could use even for good. That's what they mean when they said, I had to go to prison to find God. That 
this myriad of, of choices and decisions that brought me here, look at this good that's come out of it. My path's intersected with this group of people's path. I've heard about the gospel. I've received the gift of the Holy Ghost, been baptized in Jesus' name. And so the kingdom Mordecai, again, is referencing is not God's kingdom. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom, the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the kingdom of Persia, for such a time as this? Because it's the providence of God. It's the foresight of God. God, God is, he's not making every choice for you in this life. He gives you a will that he gave Adam and Eve from the very beginning. Right? But God sees. He has the foresight. I, I've explained it all times like this. I know as I approach that yellow light that it's going to turn red. My foresight, my understanding thing tells me that. Whenever it turns red, I didn't make it turn red just because I knew it was going to. I didn't make it happen. And there's things that happen along life. We have choices and decisions to make, and God has foresight. He knew Esther was going to try to please everybody. He knew that she was going to do this and choose that, and he brought her to this moment now, and Mordecai is very instrumental, and the providence of God sets everything up. Who knows if thou art to come to the kingdom for such a time as this that God can extract something good even out of mistakes and blunders and choices that you have made. And in essence, he's done that in all of our lives. In all of our lives, the providence of God. He can take where you are and he can turn that thing on its head and make it a platform for his glory. That's awesome. That really doesn't say anything about me. That says everything and much about God. You'll stand with me tonight. So be ready against that day. Be ready against that day. Here in a few past few weeks, have been red heifers. Here in another few weeks, it'll be something else. I'll clench people's guts, and they'll be like, "Oh, this could be it. It could be happening." And everybody be like, "I believe. I'm going to be faithful to church. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to start squaring up." It only takes for nothing happening for a while for you to then fade back into the shadows of a pattern that you had before that ever took place. Oaths are made and if you do this, I'll do that. God, things are made. Be ready against that day. Be ready. Be ready. Not get ready. Be ready against that day. If we can close our eyes across this place tonight, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I need you this evening. I pray, oh God, I know, Lord Jesus, there's some truths of your word and of the story, God, that weigh heavy upon our hearts and minds tonight. Help us, God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's F-A-C-M-C. Thank you and have a blessed day.